the ghost of radio. Welcome back. It's this, our shared podcast, dedicated to the premise and the possibility of mid-century horror radio. Happy to be here with you, gathered once again around the cauldron, filled with episodes of our genre. And you know what I'm about to do is ghost that ghostly appendage into that cauldron and pull one out. Whoa, we are in a bit of a whiplash roller coaster over the last couple of weeks. We had an amazing triumph last week with Nightmare for Murder at Midnight, and this week we're going to listen to Macabre. <laughs> Those of you who, for whom this is not your first mid-century radio rodeo know what we're about to deal with. Ah, Macabre. The episode is called The House in the Garden. The House in the Garden from Macabre, M-A-C-A-B-R-E. Go to the internet, our friend and our foe, and go to relicradio.com or archive.org. The internet archive each has it all, somehow, two infinite universes coexisting. Or go to your non-tracking search engine and type in Macabre Radio or Macabre House in the Garden. There are so few episodes of Macabre. (laughs) How do they keep turning up in our cauldron? It seems like we've done dozens of them. But there are so few, you will have no trouble finding the house in the garden. You will have trouble listening to it. I'm going to be honest with you. Off you go. See you soon. Okay, we're back from listening to The House in the Garden. These are the episodes, these especially from Macabre, that you know from your experience of listening to me and sitting here with me, they start to make me feel bad for criticizing. We will tell what we always tell about Macabre. This was not a network show with lots of money and professional script writers and professional voice actors and lots of time and resources. This was fan fiction. This was created by William Verdeer, who had worked on a few of the big uh, network shows, including Suspense. I'm trying to remember the oh, Inner Sanctum, I think. He was not, uh, he was a technical person. He was not an actor or writer, I don't think. He went to serve in the Far East in the early 60s with the U.S. Armed Forces, and he pulled together this show because all those people that age, in their 20s or 30s, in the 60s, grew up with mid-century horror radio. And it was a cool idea. Like, let's create our own show. We can't get, you know, they probably could get the real shows, but let's make our own. Let's do it. The problem is they were just not very good because William Verdeer, our writer, director, creator, producer, star, always was just not that talented. Someone has to say it. Now, was their goal to make the best radio program ever? I don't know, maybe not. But it's here, and we have to treat it like we treat all the other shows, which is to commend it when it's good and criticize it, critique it when it's bad. And we're just waiting for the good episode. Remember Weekend? Way back when? I don't even know what season we listened to Weekend. That was the first episode of Macabre. And while it was... Not great. I think it's the best one we've had so far. 
This one, they really got ambitious with the plot, and I think it was their undoing. Well, let's start with the way they always undo, which is at the very start, with their intro. Man lives in a world of time and space. He lives in a spectrum of the universe. When he ventures beyond this limit, he is in the unknown, a realm where strange forces are brought into play. When man attempts to misuse these forces, he is sometimes destroyed. This is Macabre. Far East Network presents, in special performance, Macabre. Tonight's story, The House and the Garden. So the whole premise of the episode is crazy. Let's nutshell it. Two men fighting over a woman. She doesn't get to decide. They will decide which one of them she marries by going to some freaky-ass bet that one of them can spend a decade in solitary confinement in a a cement house in the back of the (laughs) Chateau Garden. And if he does that, then when he comes out, then he gets the other guy's fortune, and then the woman will want to marry him because she only wants to marry the other guy because he's rich, is what the first guy thinks. The Count. (sighs) I mean, that is so redonkulous that we don't even know where to go from there. But for better or worse, we're going to be distracted from the plot by one of the most bafflingly badly done appearances of our old acquaintance, the meme of the manservant. We have talked about how male servants, always called manservants, without any kind of blush, were such a weird character in mid-century horror radio. How anyone in the middle of the 20th century could still have like their personal body servant, like it was ancient Rome, I don't know. How this guy, the American heir to the French fortune and chateau, etc., can have an allegedly French manservant, Manteau, who, I mean, why does he speak the way he speaks? Why? Because he's supposed to be a peasant? Because he's struggling to speak English? But Is that really what's happening? Let's just say that the American hero, William Verdeer, played by him, is speaking English. Let's say he never learned French from his French mother. So he has to speak in English to everyone and to Manteau. The the thing that still gets in our way is that the guy playing Manteau does him, unfortunately, exactly like People from the third world were portrayed when they were portrayed in these episodes. 
You know, he's portrayed as a, quote, primitive. Maybe it's just payback that finally a European is presented this way, that non-Europeans were so often presented, but it just stops the show every single time Monteau allegedly speaks. Our story concerns a medieval castle in the south of France and the strange events that befell its inhabitants. About the turn of the century, its owner, Count Jacques de Marigny, died. His mum, the master of his father's estate. It's a sweat night, a few years later. A black-caped figure strained against the storm toward a towering gray structure looming defiantly above the barren countryside. It raced across a drawbridge into the courtyard like some giant bat closing in on its victim. A moment later, the figure pounded wildly on the massive main entrance of the ancient castle and was admitted by a small, hunched servant who led the visitor into the library before a roaring fire. The man stood, patiently drying himself. Presently, he noticed the gaunt features of something else watching him from a darkened portal. For a moment, the two were motionless. Then the visitor took a step forward and asked, Good evening, monsieur. I am Inspector Bordeaux of the Prefecture of Police. I am here in answer to the urgent summons of Count Jacques de Marigny. Perhaps you'll be kind enough to inform him that I am here. Speak up, man. You cannot stand there in the shadows all evening. Good. That is better. Step over here by the fire, please. Good Lord, man. You have the look of death. What is the matter? Take me to your master at once. Where is Count? I am the Count Dumardi. Count you? Thank Dumardi? God you Inspector Bordeaux at your disposal, sir. Commodity? Now, will you explain these rather strange circumstances? Yes, in a moment. Commodity? Monto? Did you call master? Uh, two glasses of brandy. Uh, brandy, sir? Yes, brandy. Brandy is in the cellar, sir. Cellar? Well, well, the wine from the kitchen will do. Wine from the kitchen. Thank you, sir. Wine from the kitchen. Your servant is frightened, monsieur. Please be seated by the fire, Inspector. You're drenched. Oh, thank you very much. A terrible night, yes. The carriage hardly made the trip up the mountain road. But with the horses barking at the lightning, I did not expect to arrive at all. My apologies for summoning you on such a night. In so isolated a spot, a patient could die before a doctor could possibly reach him. The wine master. Oh, thank you, Monto. That will be all. Uh, a moment, if you please. Although the wine is fine, uh, the brandy would have been better. Why did you not go to the cellar for it? Go to the cellar? That will be all, Monto. You may help in the kitchen tonight. Yes, master. Thank you, master. What is wrong here, monsieur? <laughs> That's the question we are all asking. <laughs> what is wrong? We never do really find out. We're going to get a flashback to where this uh, nonsense all started. The uh, ball that they're throwing, where the count shows up. And the only good thing about this is at the end, Yvette gets to call them both out. Like, you know, I'll decide who she marries. No, I'll decide who she marries. I'll fight you for her. I'll fight you for her. I'll kill you. She gets to yell at them, but unfortunately, as usual, they don't take it anywhere. She immediately backs down from that rational position that they're both acting like idiots. And I love at the end how she says, you're you're humiliating yourself right in, in front of all your friends. And so the Count says, okay, let's do it in the kitchen. Let's just humiliate ourselves in the kitchen. Jacques, but guess who just arrived? Darling, 
Nothing matters tonight except you and me. It's our friend, the Duke. Oh? I don't recall sending him an invitation. Oh, he sees us. Jacques, he's coming over. Come on. No sense in having trouble on the dance floor. Now, that is a pretty picture, is it not? Too in love. Please, don't make a scene. Are you not leading everyone to believe I have lost you? Keep your voice down. Oh, you've made a choice all right, Yvette, so it was the fortune that really mattered. You don't want, and have not, like me, a man who could give you everything but money. That's not true. Go ahead, marry a checkbook and a press suit of clothes. That is all you are getting. It won't be a man. Uh-oh, here goes 30 years of gentlemanly upbringing. Sorry you said that, my friend. Maybe a difference of opinion about that. He would have married me if you didn't come in. And if I assault your throat, that knife away, you fool. Oh, this Stop it this minute. Both of you. It will be over in a moment. If you kill me, you'll never live to marry Yvette. I'm off the floor. I'm ashamed of you. Very well, Yvette. I have a better plan to settle our differences anyway. Do you, do you care to listen? Put the knife away. I might. You act like two spoiled children. You're disgraced in front of all your friends. Very well. Let us go into the other room. Oh, indeed. So we get the whole spiel. Yes, you're going to agree to... Yvette will agree. She's not even asked if she agrees to this. Does anyone say, okay, Yvette, do you agree to wait 10 years to decide who to marry? No, they don't ask her. She's not important. She'll do whatever they say. But, of course, she and uh, our American hero can't wait, and they get married after just five years, just the five years. And the Duke, not the Count, the Duke is uh, allegedly still out there, and he's supposed to be let out of the house in the garden uh, tomorrow, is it? But two people have been killed, two meaningless servants, and so they're afraid uh, that somehow maybe he has gotten out, learned of the deception, and is now... Instead of just killing, I cannot think of his name. I can never remember his name. The Count de Dudeli and Yvette, instead of just killing them like you think he might, he's killing their different servants. I guess just to build up the terror before he actually kills them. We're going to get a very long Monteau dialogue here, if you can call it that. It's not even something that is so bad that it's kind of funny. It's actually just super painful you just get the feeling this guy playing him was not, had no ambitions to be a radio voice actor, did not know how to do it, and they just kind of made him do it. I will extrapolate all the way out, project that the very fact that he was not good at it is what they wanted because they thought, ooh, he'll really sound like some, you know, illiterate, low life servant. Maybe there's a better, I don't know, but. Either they could not tell how bad this writing, let's blame the writing first of all, first and foremost, the writing and the voice acting was. I mean, with that kind of writing, why would you waste good voice acting on it? May we shift our attention from him, him the actor, to him, William Verdeer, the alleged writer. Again, why have you called the police? The drums. Drums? We heard them before the gardener died, and again last night before we found Suzette. What manner of drum? The kind you might hear in a jungle. <laughs> Someone is playing the game with you. Who? Yvette, Bonto, and a dozen other trusted servants live here with me. There's no one else except the Duke in the house in the garden. Pardon me, Master. Here is wine. Uh, yes, Monto. Put it by the inspector, please. Yes, Master. I do not mean to hear, 
I must tell you, servants do not think Duke's still out there. What? Last three days, Duke not touched food on tray. Tray's come back full. Perhaps the man is ill. Servants think he find out Miss Yvette Mary Count. Maybe he escaped kill everyone with voodoo drums. Voodoo? One of the provisions was that he be allowed to read anything he desired. For the past few years, he's requested books on high and low magic, sorcery, witchcraft, and the like. So, and uh, when did you first hear these uh, drums? Two nights ago. We had just gone to bed when they began to beat. Did you make an attempt to locate them? No, Inspector. We thought one of the servants was playing on them. They found a gardener in the cellar the next morning. Servants very frightened. It is easy enough to clear this up. Give me the key. I will open the house in the garden. No, not until midnight the day after tomorrow. But it's important to know if the Duke is in there. The contract states I will lose my entire fortune if I do that. We must wait. Couldn't you send for guards to protect us? Protect you from what, monsieur? Voodoo drums? <laughs> Inspector Bordeaux would be the laughingstock of all France. No, my dear Count and Countess. You have made a childish wager with an equally childish Duke. And now you are allowing your nerves to play fanciful tricks on you. I cannot help you. My coat, you will play. <laughs> I mean, I'm on board with that at the very end there. <laughs> you are... In the grips of a very stupid situation of your own making. But it's here. Oh, God, I hadn't thought of this. This makes it worse, the Manteau conundrum. When they say voodoo curses and jungle drums, are they trying to imply that Manteau is actually a servant from the French Caribbean? Oh, I hope not. I want that to not be true. Mm, but I would not put it past them. The only thing that can turn us from having that deeply troubling thought is the deep confusion that we're about to experience when our host suddenly asks this question of the visiting inspector. Mm. Inspector, have you tried our grape wine? Best stock we've had in years. Our grape wine? <laughs> Monsieur, what is the wine that I have been drinking all night made of? if not grapes. <laughs> That's a question worth asking. Okay, that night, right when the inspector's about to leave in a huff, uh, two more servants get killed. One, Well, Marie is murdered, and then they kind of, they are responsible for the death of Francois. They chase him and scare him so that he either falls or, or jumps. I guess he falls off a balcony. So that's really on them and not on the curse or the voodoo or the duke or whatever. We have a scene of action coming up that, again, has a little more Manteau in it. And it's a, a little confusing Let's what comes after this. So let's get straight here in the scene coming up. The duke and our hero are going to open the house in the garden. Manteau is going to guard Yvette. <laughs> he will guard her with his life. That's what he says. I will guard with my life. Somehow this is okay with her. Somehow this reassures her. Hey, at least they're asking her opinion this time. At least this time they ask if she goes along with it. Good morning, Master. Have bad news. Huh? How's that? Servants hear about Marie and Francois last night. All leaving. They can't leave us here all alone way out here. They say curse on castle. Everyone die. They, they not stay. Motona like voodoo drums either. Where is the inspector? He having breakfast downstairs. Tell him we'll be right down. Yes, master. But hurry. Inspector plan open house in garden. 
the last breakfast the cook made before she left. May I share it with you? I'll have only coffee, please. And uh, you with us? Yes, just coffee. Mm. Monto says you plan to open the house in the garden. Indeed. It is about time. Or do you both want to die in your sleep? Then you believe there is someone in the castle causing this? Not necessarily. How did you know it wasn't Francois? The kiddo we were following had already passed the tower room when we found the dead maid. He couldn't have come back without being seen. Francois found Marie before we did. Afraid we would mistake him for the murderer, he, like a coward, ran up the tower. He accidentally fell out the window. Master, the servant's now gone. Only we left. All right, Monto. Inspector, I have a plan. Uh, Give me one more night. One more night, monsieur. May find all of us dead in our beds. There is a madman loose. I cannot risk it. Monto can guard Yvette in the castle tonight. You and I will take up watch by the house in the garden. What do you say? I think we should leave this place immediately. Yvette, how about it? One more night? Oh, I'm frightened. But if Monto will promise not to leave me... Monto guard Countess with life. There we are. (laughs) There we are. Except, no, we're not, right? So if we nutshell the next scene, we... Well, from our knowledge of how this ends, we know that Monteau actually is a double agent working for the Duke, and he's not going to guard the Countess with life. He's actually going to kill her. And someone? When they find them both at the end of this scene, he is badly injured, a blow on the head, and she's dead. I don't know if he hits himself on the head. I don't know who's there to hit him on the head, or if this is all just the hearsay of the policeman who is actually the Duke in disguise. Maybe Monteau just lays down, and the Duke rushes over, Duke police, and says, oh, he's got a terrible blow on the head. Because he knows that um, the American's going to just be focused on finding Yvette. This is a macabre special. I mean, if there's anything that you have to seriously complain about in this episode, yes, we could let go that a bad, that there's a lot of bad writing. That's how the show is. We get it. But this is the the heart of the problem with macabre, a problem that you need to take a little more seriously than bad writing, which is, I cannot think of an episode they did where there's not at least one moment, like the one that comes at the end of this scene where they find Yvette, where there's something grotesque that happens to someone, usually their head. This reminds us of man in the mirror. Part of her head is torn off or her face has been torn off. And they have usually a woman, usually the woman who's playing Yvette. She's the one who encounters this grotesque situation and has a grotesque reaction. And it's just a sign, a manifestation of a very low EQ emotional quotient. There's IQ and EQ. And Macabre's EQ was just very low. There's never a sense of real grief or real sorrow or real shock. It's all just on this very flat, low EQ level of death is gross. And when you see something gross, you have to really freak out. I mean, that's as high a level as it ever gets to with Macabre. And this low EQ just impacts every part of the show. They have to lard it on and make things even more and more grotesque to try and get across some kind of emotional feeling, but they cannot because the whole show has such a low EQ that they don't even understand what is missing. That is the problem with Macabre in 
a very consternating nutshell. Well, let's hear the scene. Of course, one facet of it that this introduces is the, the idea that because her face has been torn off, Yvette's body is dripping so much blood that you can hear it the minute you walk in there. It's loud and echoing. And again, it's like someone who has never experienced love or horror trying to describe a scene of horror with a loved one. And what they think, I presume, is like a very subtle little sound effect of torrents of blood dripping really loudly is building up a very sophisticated tension. Instead, it's just the definition of schlock. But this is where we're at, so let's hear it. The storm has passed, but the night is disagreeable, no? Yes. Turn up the lantern, please, Inspector. It's very dark. There. That is better now. This is the house in the garden, no? Right. Made of stone, about 30 feet square. No windows. So you mentioned. Hmm. Very quiet in there. Like a tomb, eh? In a way. Here's the stone door. I have the only key. Without it, we'd have to blast to get in. Hasn't been open since we locked him up. Uh-huh. And that opening near the door? That's where his food trays are lowered. Six inches by 24, just a slip. A foreboding prison, if it is still a prison. I strongly advise you to open it up for your own safety. He couldn't have escaped. Who beat the drums? They came from the castle, not here in the garden. What do you think? You wouldn't accept my explanation. My dear Count, please do not expect me to believe in witchcraft or voodoo. This is 1910, the 20th century. Then we'll hear the drums no more. The Duke is there, and only Yvette and Montau remain in the castle, right? Exactly. There is no one else left to beat them, if you have assumed correctly. I suppose we are reasonably safe. Perhaps we are. What's that? The drums from the castle. <laughs> Yvette! Quickly, we may be too late to save her! Cellar door. Drums came from the cellar. I think so. I will go first with the lantern. There's nothing down here except rows of wine casks. We will be at the bottom in a moment. You see anything? Only wine casks. Listen. What is dripping? Wine? Hardly. Come on. Dripping is growing louder. Perhaps around this corner. Something on the floor there. What? Wait. Monto! Is he dead? No. A blow on the head. Monto, quickly. Where is the countess? I protect countess. Someone hit me with them. I dragged you into the cellar. But where is the countess? Inspector, the dripping. It's blood. Indeed. Overhead, something lying on that wine cask. Raise the lantern. It's a woman. The countess. She's alive. Her face is turning toward... Good Lord. What happened to her face? Yvette! No! It didn't... Oh, God, they didn't do this. I won't believe. She is dead, my friend. This will not help her. I know it. He couldn't stand my happiness. The Duke. Yes, the Duke. <laughs> Let's go. I'll get the key. Yes, I advise you to calm yourself. I'm 
Where are you going? To the Duke. Yes, to the Duke. We'll do what he wants at last. We'll open the house and the garden. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're going to roll through the ending now. The surprise ending, the twist ending. And it ends in a cask of Amontillado kind of way. And it reminds me, this is going to come very out of the blue. This final scene is one of the very first things I heard when I was first ghosting into mid-century horror radio. I don't remember where I heard just this part. So it is taking me down memory lane just a little bit. I'm not afraid to admit that. This was one of my first exposures. And you see how I stuck with it? Despite that, I still had the power to believe that there was something good about this genre. (laughs) So maybe we can get through this in the same way. Let's roll through. Bizarre. Most unusual. This door has been locked for years. He could not escape. Monsieur, I am completely baffled. I confess, I do not know who has harmed you. Bonto, help me with this key. Yes, master. It turned other way. Oh, all right. Turned. <coughs> there. Inspector, give us a hand. Here we go, monsieur. Door swings out. Here we go now. <coughs> Let me go first. I am armed. Bring the lantern, Monto. Yes, Inspector. What do you see? Is he there? I do not see him as yet. Shine the lantern on, Monto. Well? He is not here. He has escaped. What? I believe I understand everything at last, Count de Marigny. Quickly. Where is he, Inspector? Give me time to think. He could only have escaped with the help of one person. The man who brought his food... You accuse me? Yes. No. Monteau used your key to open the door. The Duke escaped and planned the voodoo drum deaths with the help of Monteau, who did the actual killing. No. Monteau? But why? The Duke promised him a part of your fortune. They hope to frighten you into opening the house early in order to collect your entire estate. And they have succeeded, monsieur. You lose everything. The Duke broke his agreement first by escaping. Only after I learned Yvette had not waited... For marriage is agreed. Now have you not opened the door and found me here? You, the Duke de Bastel? My dear Count. <laughs> have I changed so much in ten years? You promised you not tell. The beard. I see. I intercepted your summons for the police and masqueraded as Inspector Bordeaux. Then I persuaded you to open the house in the garden where you found that the Duke had gone. <laughs> Inspector, the door is closing. We'll be trapped. You'll die. No. Stop. Don't close the door. We can't get out. We'll die. No. Don't do it, Count. Ah! Okay. You know, if this had been a better episode, 
We might spend some time wondering how that was going to play out between those two men in that house in the garden. But this is not the trap. And so we're not going to do it. That was the house in the garden from Macabre. And again, one feels only weariness. There's no pleasure in just relentlessly tearing down a series. Not just one episode, but the entire series. <sighs> Macabre stumbled into our cauldron quite against its will. It's been shut in our cauldron like the house in the garden, and it's been trying to get out, but we're, for some reason we cannot let it. Macabre is part of the scene. It lives in a spectrum of the mid-century horror universe. And we must live in the entire spectrum ourselves. And so there's no skipping over or ignoring one particular part of that spectrum. When we do that, we might be destroyed. Let's get our outro. just heard Macabre, a special Far East Network presentation. In our cast were John Buey as Inspector Bordeaux, Walt Sheldon as the Duke de Bastille, Shirley Ashey as Countess Yvette, William Verdier as Count Jacques de Marigny, and Airman First Class James Conley as Monteau. Technical supervision by Airman First Class Larry Clements. Special sound patterns by Air Force Sergeants Bob Eddy and Newell Stewart. This is Air Force Sergeant Al LePage speaking. Macabre was written and directed by William Verdier. comes to you each week at this time through the worldwide facilities of the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. Oh, if there is one reason to keep macabre in this cauldron, it's to hear that last moment, the fleeting closing theme song of the series is so beautiful and it accomplishes everything the show wanted to. It's poignant, it's unnerving, it's beautiful and it's spooky. It's just everything the show wanted to be. It's just so ironic that they only get it in their closing theme and nowhere else. But I will listen to that all day long. So macabre, you don't completely leave us hanging, right? We have to give them something. And that final closing theme is what gives. Oh, we are done. Done with that particular journey. I'm back in perhaps a different spectrum of our mid-century horror universe in our cauldron and in Ogden, Maryville, Redwood City, and Hattiesburg. 
We are hoping that the next time we join around this cauldron, we'll be exploring better things. Odds are that we will. I mean, someday we're going to come to the end of the eight macabre episodes. We've done four, haven't we? We're halfway done. That's worth celebrating as we go our way this week. (laughs) So, as you do, be safe, be happy, and I'll see you soon. Mm. Inspector, have you tried our grape wine? I didn't think I hit you that hard. Our grape wine.